Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Over the last 13 months, some of the world's great rock artists have died. Thursday of this week, of course, it was uh, David Crosby. Of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and then eventually Young. On January 10th, guitarist Jeff Beck of the Yardbirds and the Jeff Beck Group. Beck is often listed as one of the top five rock guitarists ever. Another rock artist who've died since uh, January 2022, so just over a year, include Christine McVie of Fleetwood Mac, Meatloaf, Jim Seals, Ronnie Hawkins, Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh, I want to talk about the, uh, the influence of the rockers of the 60s and the 70s who increasingly are dying. They're getting older. And I just didn't realize this until I looked at the story. David Crosby, 81. Uh, so many others in their 70s and early 80s. Alan Cross, broadcaster, writer on music, weekdays at 102.1 The Edge in Toronto, the host of the ongoing series of new music, Sundays on 102.1 The Edge, and, of course, a journal of musicalthings.com. Alan, thank you for coming on. Uh, there's a, a number of artists I'd like to talk to you about and just their influence on all of us. But David Crosby, when you think of David Crosby, what comes to mind? What's most enduring about him? Well, the fact that he made it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice, first with the Birds and then with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Uh, two, you know, incredibly important bands in the pantheon of American rock, the, uh, the Birds for this jangly sort of California band that uh, turned some Dylan covers and some originals into something pretty awesome. And then, of course, uh, he was fired. David Crosby was fired from that band because he couldn't get along with Graham Nash. And then later, they end up in Crosby, Stills, and Nash together. Uh, it, it was, um, and, and, uh, uh, they made their debut at, at Woodstock in 1969 without ever having recorded anything. And that first album with Sweet Judy Blue, Blue Eyes on it and all the other hits that came along later, sometimes with Neil Young, sometimes not, it's just, uh, you know, a tremendous foundation for what uh, American rock and roll became in the 1970s. It was that California music scene as well, right? Uh, yeah, he was very big uh, part of the uh, the Laurel Canyon scene. If you've seen the the, uh, the yes. HBO series, yeah. very good. Um, he dated Joni Mitchell. That ended badly. He never really got over over her. But he, you know, he was part of that group that uh, there was a bunch of them that just cranked out song after song, hit after hit. Uh, during that special time in, in California, and their songs were were different. Their styles were different. You think of the Beach Boys, and then. Uh, uh, the Mamas and the Papas, different sounds, but shared interests, and, and, sh- and they shared their music, didn't they? Uh, they did. I mean, it was it was almost a, a commune-type living, but, you know, everybody knew everybody. Everybody hung out with everybody. Everybody wrote songs with everybody else, and that eventually led to the Crosby, Stills, and Nash pairing, and uh, um, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Um, and one of the things that, that really, I guess what they would have done is is practice their harmonies. Um, I mean, the birds had some great harmonies, but CSN was just absolutely fantastic. David Crosby provided the low end of that. 
uh, the grit. The other two guys were the mid and the high range. And it just it just went together so well that uh, we'd never heard, heard anything like that. Again, we go back to that first album from 69, I guess it is. Uh, nobody had heard rock and roll, folk rock harmonies like that before. Yeah, I uh, had the pleasure of getting to know Barry Maguire, um, Eva Destruction. And uh, he would come on this program quite frequently, and he actually re-recorded it. It sounded better when he was 78 than when he was 28. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, David Crosby was, was uh, continuing to make music. He, he said he was retired from, uh, from touring um, early last year, but April or May of last year. But then in December, he said, you know what? I can't stay away from it. I, I've got to make music. Art is the only thing that endures. I'm thinking about forming a new band. But then he was apparently quite ill. And um, the story I'm hearing from a bunch of people is he may have he may have died of COVID. And that's not terribly surprising, given his comorbidities. Remember, in 1994, he had a liver transplant. Uh, he had ruined his, his original liver with uh, drugs and alcohol and hepatitis C. Uh, and then he had type 2 diabetes, which was pretty serious had to lose a ton of weight to keep that under control. So it's, it's not surprising that, uh, you know, uh, maybe even a mild COVID infection might have got to him. Yeah. McGuire told me an interesting story uh, that he, he used to hang out with the mamas and papas. And he said they were out on uh, California freeway in a Volkswagen bus, which they, they all had each band, I think, had to have a Volkswagen bus. So he was in the bus. They were going about 60 to 70 miles an hour. And suddenly, uh, Mama Cass says, where's McGuire? The bus had never stopped. The Volkswagen bus had never come to a stop. Where's McGuire? McGuire was up on the roof. He'd gotten, <laughs> climbed through this, I don't know if it was a factory uh, installed sunroof or whether they'd done it or somebody just cut a hole in the roof. But he was up there enjoying the scenery. And uh, he did say that he might have been under the influence of something or other at the time. But the stories <laughs> the stories that, that came along with them were as much a part of their legend as, as their music, I think. Well, it was the height of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, um, <laughs> and everybody partook in, in, in everything. So, yeah, there were, there were lots of stories. Some of them can't be told because <laughs> there are still too many people that are, are still alive and could be heard by them. Uh, I, I interviewed David Crosby once uh, at the Oakville place. He had a, there was a film based on, on a, biographical, a, a biographical, biographical film based on his life. And uh, he was supposed to join us via Skype. Well, that didn't work, of course, because Skype never works properly when you need it to. So uh, he phoned my, 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 uh, my iPhone, and I held up. we conducted the interview with me um, holding the microphone into the bottom of my phone so the audience could hear him. Oh, great. That would have been high-tech in the 60s. Well, yeah, it would have been, but this was uh, 2019. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there, was, there was the California sound. There was the Liverpool sound. There was uh, Detroit and there was this, Jeff Beck, Yardbirds and uh, the Jeff Beck Band. Alan, when you hear Jeff Beck, what do you hear? Very tasteful playing. The, the man was extremely um, judicious with the notes that he used. He only used, used the notes that, that uh, were absolutely necessary. And he is an example of how tone is not in the guitar, tone is in the fingers. You could give him any beat-up guitar, and just by the way he manipulated it, you knew it was Jeff Beck. He had this, this sound and this ability and this, this tastefulness. Um, yes, he could rip off a solo like anybody else, but there was something almost jazz-like with his playing because it was the space between the notes 
or the notes that weren't there that made a lot of his playing so wonderfully evocative. Um, there was uh, one time, 1983, Ronnie Lane's Arms concert, uh, where Beck was on stage with both Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page. All three guys used to be in the Yardbirds, all considered to be the top three guitarists in the world. And if you watch the video online, you will see Jeff Beck completely blow away both those other, both those other guys. He really he wasn't um, the, the big star. I mean, uh, Jimmy Page will always have Led Zeppelin. Eric Clapton will always have all his solo success. Uh, Jeff Beck was, wasn't a frontman. He was a guitarist. He'd play with any number of people, um, as well as the solo stuff, but he never sang. He would get somebody like Rod Stewart to sing for him, and he would let his guitar playing do the talking. Less is more. Meatloaf, Ronnie Hawkins, Christine McVie. Couldn't be any different, the music, but it's all classic rock and roll, and it's all going to stay with us, Alan. Uh, context on these three artists. Uh, they came to us during a time where music was absolutely everything. It was the main driver of popular culture. And all three of them left us with a tremendous legacy of, of songs and also influence. So we're, we're never going to forget somebody like Ronnie Hawkins, for example, probably one of the most important people in uh, you know 50s and 60s rock and roll, just by virtue of the fact that he introduced the world to the band. Um, Christine McVie, she was the person who wrote the majority of the big hits for uh, Fleetwood Mac, um, you know, Songbird, something, you know, it just goes on forever. Uh, Meatloaf, uh, he wasn't a songwriter, but he was a heck of a performer, together with his partner Jim Steinman, uh, has one of the biggest selling records of all time in Bad Out of Hell from 1977. He also had a couple of other big selling albums, so... You know, again, these people were part of our cultural fabric and will remain that way because of the art that they left behind. And there were others who uh, passed away who weren't necessarily huge names throughout the world of music. Um, Dan McCafferty, Jim Seals of Seals and Cross, and uh, Robbie Bachman was with BTO, of course, for so many years as their drummer in the, in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. We look at these these artists of the 60s and the 70s. As I said earlier, they're getting older and they're they're passing away, but their music stays with us. Alan, how enduring do you think the, 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 the music of the 60s and the 70s, maybe even into the 80s, is going to prove to be long-term? Uh, quite a bit, and uh, the answer is a little bit different than you might expect. What we're seeing is these very large corporations like Hypnosis, Primary Wave, Concord, uh, and a few others, who are buying up these catalogs of these heritage artists. Bob Dylan sold his for about $450 million. Uh, Bruce Springsteen's got $500, $550 million. Uh, members of, various members of Fleetwood Mac have sold their piece of the family business for hundreds of millions of dollars. So we have these uh, big companies who believe these songs have legs. Uh, at the very least, they have 70 years after the death of the, primary, of the final composer of a song to exploit it before the song enters the public domain. So that's a fairly long time but they have to make their money back, hundreds of millions of dollars in money uh, that has to be returned to their shareholders, and they have to make a little bit of a profit. So they're going to do whatever they have to do to make sure that these songs that they own live on for a very, very long time, perhaps a lot longer than they would have otherwise. Uh, so what we're going to see in the coming decades is uh, a renewed interest in these songs, whether it means, uh, you know, it could be anything from 
having somebody cover like a Fleetwood Mac song uh, and get the royalties from that to every, maybe commissioning a, a Broadway musical to doing a biopic to charging for samples to, you know, all these sorts of things. So these songs, these artists are going to live for a lot longer because of the financial imperative to make the money back on what is now a market worth oh, two and a half, three billion dollars. Our hospitals in Canada are funded on what's called global budgets, meaning they're given a certain amount of dollars to sort of make it through the year, uh, rather than the dollars following the the patient, which is called activity-based funding, which then, of course, incentivizes ensuring that certain volumes of care get delivered to patients. And, of, of course, there's then more accountability around the actual care the patient's receiving. Dr. Catherine Smart, the uh, immediate past president of the Canadian Medical Association. On this program last uh, weekend, the money follows the patient. That's the way it should be. The money should follow the patient. And what that means is the money would be there for you when you go to the hospital. The money would be there. As opposed to the money going to a um, budget expectation, let's call it. And so now we have the federal government and the provincial governments Coming to the cusp of an agreement on funding. Well, I hope it works. But in the past, the experience has been that increased funding doesn't appear to repair what's wrong. It doesn't appear to repair what's wrong. And now there are different approaches taking place with the province of Ontario Uh, making changes and becoming more privately engaged, and the province of Ontario encouraging healthcare professionals to move to the province and practice there if you're practicing somewhere else. More on this as we go through this segment. Five million Canadians have no family physician. Now, that is critically important because those five million Canadians need healthcare from somewhere. And if they have no family doctor, I'll say it again, the first link in the healthcare chain is broken. Where do they go? A walk-in clinic? God bless them. But they're not your family doctor. The hospital ER? Want to wait eight, nine, ten hours or longer? I'm not knocking them. They're doing the best they can under the circumstances and with the resources they have. Why has the healthcare system in this country deteriorated to the extent that Canadians are dying, undercared for, while simply waiting for the most basic of care, including in hospital emergency rooms? Dr. Sean Watley is the past president of the Ontario Medical Association. He's the author of When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is failing. Dr. Watley joins us on The Roy Green Show. Dr. Watley, this is not a uh, throwaway question. How are you? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for joining us. Would you assess, please, the healthcare system in this country now? And I'm going to go back to the title of your book, which begins to tell the story, maybe tells the entire story, When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing. Would you just, before we get into your book, assess the healthcare system now? 
Well, I think the healthcare system continues to be an extremely important feature to all Canadians. I mean, we we value it highly. We believe in the dream that it will be there for us when we get sick. But too often, the reality of getting sick means we're sitting in a stretcher, in a hallway, in an emergency department, wearing a diaper, um, with no one to help you to get to the bathroom. You have to relieve yourself there. So really gruesome reality when you actually get sick. Fortunately, only 4% of any given population uh, in a, you know, a feeder area for a, for a large hospital, only 4% of those people actually ever need to be admitted to acute care in a particular year. So most of us live on the dream and we're not aware of the reality. And COVID kind of forced that reality into our faces in just about every headline you saw for two and a half years. And so now people are, have been confronted with, okay, maybe the dream I've, I've been living on isn't real. And so we need to focus on the reality. And so I think the political pressure or the political winds now are blowing and, and the premiers are saying, okay, so it looks like the public's okay with some cautious change and some increased funding to increase services for patients. And so that's what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks. Do you believe that uh, increased funding is going to increase services for patients to the extent that it's it's required? The formula has not worked so far. All we have to do is look around and see what we're facing. And you're right, COVID did remind us or make it very starkly obvious to us where the failings and the shortcomings and the weaknesses are in our healthcare system. They were there before, but now we're just really aware of them. So do you believe that uh, a new front funding formula between the federal government and the provinces is actually going to significantly change things? Not a hope. Not a hope. I mean, well, we, we've got uh, a 41.3 billion reasons to know that it won't make a radical change. So Paul Martin in 2004 um, gave us his fix for a generation, a gigantic injection of cash, and it really didn't do much. It helped uh, doctors and nurses' uh, incomes catch up to where they used to be 15, 20 years before, but it really didn't create fundamental change. Um, the other thing that we could see with a gigantic injection of cash is you might see a wing put on a hospital or a new ward open, and the new ward would be wonderful for a few weeks until it's completely full again. So really, what we're looking at and, uh, you know, Clay Christensen wrote a great book, 1997, called The Innovator's Dilemma. And he's famous for inventing what's known as disruptive um, innovation. And he, he came up with that idea in 1995. And so all the business students have heard this term over and over. But really what it means is, and we can explain it, if we think of computers. So 30 years ago, the only computing power you could get that was reasonable was with a mainframe computer. So gigantic machines, they would be the size of, you know, a whole floor of your house. And these personal computers, yeah, they were around in the late 1980s, but they were kind of a novelty for geeks who, you know, like myself, who liked planning, you know, programming, that sort of thing, playing games on them or whatever. But eventually the personal computers started to offer computing power that was actually not only what people needed, it started to exceed what people needed. Oh my goodness, I had I could do Word documents and spreadsheets and calculations. And mainframes were still there. They were still gigantic and they were still really, really powerful. But the expense and what they could offer went far beyond what the average person ever needed. And so that's kind of what we're seeing with 
hospitals. Hospitals are amazing. They offer sophisticated care, bypass surgery. You know, you can have blood coming out of your body through a machine and back into your body and intraortic balloon pumps, which actually help pump the blood for right. you when your blood pressure is too low. Like all sorts of wonderful, wonderful things. But you have to get However, past the ER first. I'm sorry, what? You have to get past the emergency room first. Well, that's true too. But they're like the mainframe computers. They've gone beyond what the average person needs. And so they can't even meet the demand, as you say, of the folks trying to get through the emergency department. So what Ford has suggested is let's start giving some of those services like a knee replacement, knee replacement, very standard we know how long it takes. Let's start doing those in health facilities that already exist in Ontario because we don't need these gigantic acute care hospitals to mm -hmm. provide those services. So that's, that's the disruptive thing he's doing. Yeah, we're, we're talking to a national audience and when they hear Ontario, sometimes they're less than happy, um, which I understand. But now we have a situation where Mr. Ford, the premier, appears to be en en uh, enticing some would argue poaching, attempting to poach healthcare professionals from other Canadian jurisdictions, and then without requiring these professionals like nurses to register with the provincial colleges of nurses. Do you have concerns about um, this kind of development? We could end up with 13, well, we have 13 different jurisdictions uh, in Canada with healthcare, including the federal government. Do you have concerns? We could end up with a competitive situation, one province trying to poach from the others? Oh, for sure. We already have some competition right now, but it's just difficult to change. So it's only going to get but better then. <laughs> we've always <laughs> staffed our system by poaching. Usually it's poaching from other countries, which yeah. is a, a, a moral failure, I think, where we steal docs from poor countries that really desperately need them to come and staff our system. So now we're just having interprovincial poaching. Dr. Watley, when we talk about the money following the patient, and that is, that's not a phrase that I've only heard for the last two weeks from CMA presidents. It's a phrase I've heard or a term I've heard for decades. And certainly we've, one we've used many times in discussions about healthcare. But what does it mean for the average person? The money follows the patient and particularly for the five million who have no family doctor. Yeah, great question. So when it comes to hospital care, most hospitals in Canada, uh, we were the last place in the world actually, focused on what's called global budgets. So essentially, the hospital received a mountain of cash to provide all the care expected during that year. The trouble is, it's very difficult to plan for a COVID pandemic or for an increase in population or a new housing uh, development to open up. And so hospitals were always focused on trying not to go over budget. They would lose money if they provided more care. So that's the global budget approach. The good thing about a global budget is it's simple and it's predictable. So governments know how much hospitals are going to cost, give or take, you know, a few hundred million dollars. However, it's very rigid. It's very, very hard to change processes. Activity-based funding or where dollars actually follow patients means that hospitals get more budget or more income. They make money, if you want to put it in those terms, when you go in to get your knee replaced. So they're very eager to get you in to get your knee replaced. They are not benefiting at all if they are not providing care. The trouble with activity-based funding is it's very difficult to transform our hospitals. To your point, I've heard this before. It's because we've been trying it for about 20 years. So Quebec and uh, and Ontario, great, great uh, report I was just looking at this morning. 
um, that reviews the last two decades of our attempts to get patient-based funding, activity-based funding. And the difficulty primarily is that the hospital's interests or the hospitals are motivated to show how activity-based funding is going to fail. Secondly, a activity-based funding works best for simple, concrete procedures. You need your blood test done. You go to a, in, you know, an independent clinic and the clinic does the blood test and the clinic gets paid. I, I don't so want to interrupt con- you. I, I don't want to inter- interrupt you, but I will for just a moment. And, and here's what I'm hearing you say. I'm hearing you repeat the title of your book. When politics <laughs> comes before patients, that's yeah. what I'm hearing. Yeah, I, I don't want to. I don't want to toot it to uh, toot the horn too much. It, I, I, in fairness, hospitals are very, very difficult. And I'm not to talking change. about hosp- just hospitals, Doctor Watley. We're talking about the whole yeah. system here that is being yeah. managed by politicians, and it's become a political football. You and I know this. Yeah. I'm hearing it from everyone I speak with, virtually everyone I speak with. There's not a lot of defense for the healthcare system the way it is, and if we talk about the pandemic, it's the flashlight which exposed the structural weaknesses of Canada's public health care delivery system. And there were plans in place. There were plans in place that were approved by the provinces and the federal government, pandemic plans. And the moment the pandemic hit, the plans went out the window. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I would hate to be a politician right now trying to manage health care. But that's their job. Well, you'd think that's right? their but job. We keep, elect- we, we keep electing the we same people. We have 38 million people in this country, and it's the number one issue. You're the person they want to go to see, Dr. Watley. Anyone who's a doctor, particularly family physicians, I know the pressure on family physicians is through the roof at this particular time. Emergency rooms are a challenge, uh, other hospital services are often not available. So where do you turn? You turn to the family doctor, which brings me back to the 5 million people who have no family doctor. We also have this aging population. Can this system, Dr. Watley, be fixed in time to deal with the aging population and the aging doctor population? Yeah. I I like to say that we don't have an absolute lack of doctors, especially family doctors. We do have an absolute lack of pediatric neurologists, right? Sub-subspecialists. Yes, we need more of them. But actually, if we took the um, 22,000 practicing docs in Ontario, about 15,000, 16,000 doctors who are family doctors, and we said, you know what, you can blow the doors off your current procedures and start caring for more people, just like your dentist does and your lawyer and your accountant, and they do that by hiring extenders. So it's not that they are given an extender from the government, but these little offices, your accountant, for example, goes out and hires a bunch of people to help him or her do their accounting work. So do lawyers, so do dentists. Right now we have a relative lack of doctors due to an absolute lack of freedom to innovate on how we offer care. So that's the primary issue. Docs should be able to offer care to far more than a thousand or 1500 patients. This takes me back to your book title. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, know. I really appreciate you mentioning it, Roy. But no, but, that, but it's true. It takes it me back to your book title. I'm going to open up the phone lines in the next half hour and take phone calls from people who are struggling within the system. I'm sure this. I'm going to be hearing what you and I have been talking about and what I've spoken about with Dr. LaFontaine and Dr. Smart and what I've spoken about with, with other doctors. We don't usually find the politicians too eager to come on the program to talk about health care. They'd rather talk to each other and then issue news releases. 
Can we fix this? We have 30 seconds, Dr. Watley. Can we fix this and get back to servicing the people who require the help who are in interminable wait lines right now? Yes, if we ask why the system exists. If the system exists for patient care, okay. then we will focus on delivering that. If it exists simply to provide income redistribution from yeah. one province to the next, never happens. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, one of the issues we talked about last weekend and have talked about on a number of occasions recently has been uh, immigration. And primarily because the federal government has said that they plan to raise the immigration numbers by 2025 to half a million immigrants annually. So oh, they've also said that they're going to introduce aggressive measures to be able to take care of the immigration backlog. Somebody in the minister's department came up with the term aggressive measures, and they ran it past one of their little internal focus groups, i.e. the people who work in Office B. What do you think of that? Think it'll work? Yeah, sounds good. Use it. So then the rest of us get exposed to aggressive measures, and then everybody in the media repeats it, including me. I try not to, but I just got sucked in. Richard Curland, immigration lawyer in Vancouver. He's advised the federal and Quebec governments on immigration policies. Why Quebec? Because they have their own immigration system. But let's, uh, let's talk about the Trudeau government reviewing aggressive measures to clear the immigration backlog. And why is the immigration backlog so large? And why, what might these aggressive measures turn out to be? And are the government's plans to permit 500,000 newcomers annually by, annually by 2025 realistic? What else do I have here for you? 75% um, of Canadians have expressed concern the number's too high and will negatively affect housing, health care, and government services. Are they being exclusive, exclusionary rather, and unfair? Mr. Curlin, how are you, sir? Very well, sir. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you. I always find out how wrong I am about things. <laughs> <laughs> I have these wonderfully thought out <laughs> ideas. I come to these absolutely logical conclusions, and you destroy them in three seconds. <laughs> well, logic, it's a hobby, not a sport. <laughs> All right. So we know that last year there were, according, this is now according to the immigration minister, not me that we had 400,000-plus permanent residents in 2022. But you told us a few weeks ago on this program that that number is not exactly what it appears to be. Would you explain that to us, please? Yeah. You see, you, you, you have to look at both sides of the ledger here. Permanent residents, very nice. Um, these are people with status to remain physically present permanently in Canada, but that's a partial picture. You have to look at two things, the inventory of permanent residents and the inventory of temporary residents. Because, you know, a guy in the street is thinking immigrants, meaning 
people who are not from here. Well, if you have half a million immigrants, these are not people coming to Canadian shores. That, that's not how business works these days. Our immigrants are selected from people already living here with temporary status, uh, students, foreign workers, what have you. But Richard, they had and to come to Canada at some point. Yeah, and that's, that's what people are missing since, uh, and, uh, since the last seven, eight years. We have increased the pool of people here in Canada with temporary status from about 1.2 million to over 3.3 million people. And that is what is affecting our housing supply. Not immigrants coming here to look for some place to live, but if you increase the number of students and foreign workers adding literally millions uh, to search for housing, surprise, demand goes up. And even though it's a distraction move, point your finger at the number of immigrants and not identifying the massive increase in inventory of people with temporary status in Canada, you mislead the public. So it's a distraction move, a distraction move by the government. Yeah. Uh, people who don't know enough to ask the proper question, they're going to get hoodwinked. Yeah, because we see, we hear 500,000 immigrants, newcomers, by 2025. And so we hear those words because those are the words that are spoken. And to the logical ear, that means half a million newcomers in the country in 2025, because that's what the guy just said. That's it. But something's different this time around, radically different. We got really smart. We have been selecting systematically the brightest, the best, the most capable human capital in our history. We are now literally leading the world when it comes to IT specialists, occupations that are in the highest demand globally, and we're building an economic infrastructure that's going to put Canada Number one. Okay, question for you. How many of them are staying? Because I read a report or story a couple of days ago that our current economic reality and the situation that exists in Canada is causing some of the experts who've come here and the fact that they can't get licensed to do the jobs that, they, yeah. that, they're, that they're qualified to do from the countries they, they arrived at, they're looking elsewhere. They're looking yeah. to move again. And here's why I don't care. <laughs> it's because for every one of these people that... You don't care because you're an immigration lawyer. They're already here. Well, they're already here. Well, for an immigration lawyer, it's even better. If someone wants to leave, the immigration lawyer has another case to do. Uh -huh. uh, and as far as I'm concerned, if a person wants to leave and transport Canadian values to a country like China or somewhere in the Middle East or Iran, fantastic. If they're leaving, there are three more to take that job. There are three more to take that spot. So what is so aggressive I measure? I have a problem. Richard, what do, and, and people should know Richard and I have been friends for years. <laughs> um, what does aggressive measures mean? When the minister talks wow. about uh, engaging <laughs> aggressive measures to clear the immigration backlog, what is he talking about? That's a soundbite to indicate they have control of the dossier. Or they want to have control. Uh, yeah, and what is actually happening, facts on the ground, folks, is that they are diluting 
the safeguards and controls used to screen prospective uh, entrance to this country. Um, what it really means in this aggressive measure guideline is that they're going to shut one eye to how much money a person has, in fact, uh, that uh, is going to be used to come to this country. In the past, until this aggressive measure announcement, you had to show deep pockets that you can afford actually to stay here and remain here without working illegally. Under this aggressive measure, uh, they're going to tinker with the artificial intelligence decision-making framework that's used to process uh, visas outside Canada to kind of uh, uh, dumb down the need to, for an applicant to show they can afford to travel. Are you suggesting there's artificial intelligence in Ottawa? Uh, I said overseas. <laughs> in Ottawa, I think track record speaks for itself. Mr. Curland, if a significant number, if the majority of newcomers, as the government um, would define them to us, are already here, so it's not an issue of 500 new, thousand newcomers, they're already here, or most of them. How many newcomers, actual newcomers, arrive in this country annually? COVID is the problem for, for a, a, a factual answer. But um, uh, taking that into account, you're, you're, you're talking about processing and extensions of people already here, uh, close to three, two, three, three million. A year. Uh, it's a total float. Every year you're going to get uh, uh, fresh blood is about uh, a million two. So, so, you're, you're, so, so there, there, how many leave? You got to take that into account. What does that mean? It means uh, what's your net? What's your float? What's your like uh, uh, cash action on humans uh, physically present in Canada? So you've got a float, and by float I mean uh, people with minimum one year temporary status and longer uh, of uh, at least uh, three five three million five. Uh, you've got two hundred million entries a year at our ports of entry. Uh, so it's, it's quite a task uh, to uh, process, monitor, control. We 200 million? 200 million entries a year. And that includes Canadians, of course. Yeah, Those no, are I, I get that. I get that. Foreigners. I get that. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's a busy uh, system in constant churn, uh, but we've managed to attract do and we, retain Do we actually know... Quality. I go back to the 500,000 because that's what yeah. the government is telling us. By 2025, they're not saying 2023, they're saying by 2025. Mm. So, again, if the majority of, well, it sounds to me like all of the 500,000 and maybe more are here now. Yep. And uh, the 500,000 that will be declared in 2025 are here now. Well, you take the Band-Aid off the forehead that says temporary status and you place it with a Band-Aid that says permanent resident status. It's the same human. It's the same neighbor. Uh, but uh, the lucky ones with the good Band-Aids get to stay permanently with their families. What makes the difference? Uh, the, it's, it's the jousting tournament. An express entry system selects the new uh, echelon of permanent residents and the magic, the secret sauce in that express entry system is you make immigrants compete against immigrants. They're fighting each other in a giant goldfish bowl to get to the top of the goldfish bowl, the highest scoring fish points based on your age, education, work experience, the highest scoring fish gets scooped out 
and are given permanent resident band-aids. Uh, the rest are caught in that bowl, and eventually they got to leave. But what is the result? It's bad for a lot of those immigrants who goldfish uh, uh, bowl uh, laden, but it's great for Canada because we get the best as a result of that cruel competition. In the goldfish bowl. Yep. So I'm learning all sorts of new government terminology today. Okay, so I, I'm understanding you now. I'm, I started to understand you a couple of weeks ago because we just, you know, when, we're, when we receive a news story, we go by what we see. Because, yeah. And then we start to challenge where necessary and when necessary. So what Canadians were concerned about, what they told pollsters, the Association for Canadian Studies, Jack Jedwab's group, and he was on the air with us last weekend as well, 75% said five... 500,000 is too much annually because it will negatively affect or could negatively affect social programs, health care, housing. So you're, but you're telling us the number is far greater than 500,000. That's right. 500,000 is, 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 is a drop in the, in the goldfish bowl. And the 500,000, don't forget, we rejig the rules provincially and federally. These are people who are already paying taxes to cover Medicare to cover government services because they're working here. But, you're, but, you're, but you just said a couple of minutes ago what the government is going to be doing with its aggressive measures philosophy is watering, I'm using all sorts of uh, fish no, no, references now, watering down apply. the process. No, 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 that doesn't apply to immigrants. That only a, applies basically to tourists. tourists. No, but no, People but the government, but the, tell me if I'm wrong here, isn't the government saying that they're going to engage aggressive measures to clear the immigration backlog? Well, they, again, it's uh, magic words. The, 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 what immigration backlog? Not for permanent residents. The, the backlog is in the overseas work permits, study permits, visitor visas. That's what's going to come under aggressive measures. Let people be tourists more easily. <laughs> they may sell it as they're going to do something about some permanent resident backlog. But again, if it's a backlog where you've been invited to apply, they finally got smart over so many decades. And here's, here's something, brain food, don't take in more files in a year than you can process in a year. And they've done that for the last three fiscals. They've cured the fundamental immigration problem of uh, no quotas. Okay. So it's not about permanent residence. Aggressive measures are for temporary status. Okay. All right, let's get to this uh, story, this developing story in this country. It's unpleasant. Uh, stranger attacks. Uh, some are deadly, as happened yesterday when a woman in Toronto, elderly woman, was allegedly pushed to the pavement, hitting her head. She never regained consciousness. A man has been charged. There are the teens we talked about earlier who've been charged with, uh, with assault, allegedly uh, committing assault. Ari Goldkind is a criminal lawyer in Toronto, media commentator. Ari, thank you for, for taking the time. Um, thoughts on what appears to be an increasing reality or phenomenon of these stranger attacks? Well, I'm not sure it's anything other than violence is increasing in Canada. The country is changing. There are those who will lie through their teeth and say, no, it's just people are paying more attention to it, or the headlines are more salacious. That's false. As you know, Roy, media is shrinking. There are less mainstream outlets to cover this. There are less mainstream outlets that can talk about this. Canadians know that their cities, particularly my city in Toronto, is going down the toilet. Politicians won't address it because they'll sing Kumbaya. 
but this is a phenomenon that as Canada changes, and make no mistake, Canada is fundamentally changing, and it will not be the same as it was 20 years ago, and it will not be the same in 10 years ago. Crime is changing, and it is becoming two things. One, much more vicious, and two, and this is the part that you're not supposed to talk about if you do what I do for a living, but I frankly don't care, the fact that the viciousness and violenceness of crime is moving to people under 18, to your point about the young 13 to 16-year-old girls charged with the murder of the homeless man. When you look at all of the circumstances, Roy, about that event, and then you add to it, and again, you have listeners all across Canada. In my city, the rise of carjackings, robberies, stabbings, pharmacy uh, burglaries, it tends to now be people under 18, and that's because as many people listening to you uh, would ask, is our Youth Criminal Justice Act now properly responding to youth crime? And that is an open debate that I can assure you, Roy, will not happen. So, okay, let's, uh, let's talk about this Youth Criminal Justice Act. What do you think of it? What's your professional view? Well, if you ask me my professional view as a defense lawyer, I'm going to give you a somewhat more moderated answer than my, I'm a Canadian citizen. Okay, give me the Canadian citizen, Ari, version. All right. It is one thing, Roy, when you have a Youth Criminal Justice Act that very properly is concerned with the idea that a young person's mind is not fully formed by the time they're 18. That being said, you can get a driver's license at 16, Roy, and Mm -hmm. you can drive a 2,000-pound killing machine. There is some responsibility, but somehow if you're 17 years old and 11 12th, you're treated as sort of a juvenile. As a Canadian citizen, my view is, look, there are going to be, Roy, no doubt about it, youthful indiscretion. Okay? There are going to be fights. There's going to be a fight over an iPhone. There's going to be an interaction with a girl when you're 16 or 17 where a youth mind may not understand consent and boundaries the way you and I do, Roy, okay? And I don't think a 16-year-old at a party should serve and suffer lifetime consequences uh, because of something they did at 16 when their brain wasn't fully formed. I have no difficulty with that. But when you're now talking the kind of gangland, gang-style shooting, gun possession, killing of a homeless man, and remember, the homeless advocates for Ken Lee, let's put a name to him, Roy, the homeless advocates are pretty silent on this uh, eight-person alleged killing of a homeless man, because on the wokeometer, and that's the word I made up, but I think it applies to everything today, on the wokeometer, somehow Ken Lee as a homeless man ranks way below on the wokeometer the eight teenage girls, so as a citizen... My concern is that the Youth Criminal Justice Act is not being applied or adapted properly to the change, the level of violence. But as a defense lawyer, there are many occasions where a 15, 16, 17-year-old's mind should not be adjudicated or sentenced like an adult. And uh, young people are very much aware of the Youth Justice Criminal Act and its limitations. Not only that, Roy, it's a joke. If you look at the reporting from yesterday in the bail court in Toronto, the eight girls are all, the seven girls that are left that haven't gotten bail, they're all snickering, they're all yeah, laughing. I saw that. I can tell you, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not, that's not my reporting. It's a great writer 
named Michelle Mandel, who actually goes to these things. And, you know, you can't say much about these things, Roy, because there's a secrecy ban, a publication ban. You can't identify them. I mean, I know who they are. I know more than I can talk about, but you can't say a word about it. The problem is, is that even amongst the youth detention centers, they know they're all going to get a kiss. Many organized groups and gangs will have these young people do their bidding because the sentence is non-existent and it will be wiped from the planet AT. And let me go back quickly to Ken Lee. That's the dead homeless man. His family came out yesterday and there, but for the grace of God, go all of us. Doesn't matter that I'm a defense lawyer. And look, I would defend one of these. And Ari, I apologize. I apologize. I only have 20 seconds. Yep. Very quickly, they say, Roy, how is it fair that our daughter or your daughter or your son will sit in the class next to these girls and you'll never know it was them? That's That's a very, very fair point that exposes Canadians to things that I think should be better addressed. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.